0: that the deity of the father is assumed in scripture the deity of the son is affirmed and argued for the deity of the holy spirit was inferred so the three lines of argumentation that we had with regard to the deity of the holy spirit were these three the holy spirit is called god and identified as god in acts chapter five the holy spirit possesses the perfections of god and the holy spirit performs the works of god those were the three lines of argumentation that we studied last week, and we concluded, therefore, the Holy Spirit is God. Tonight, we consider the person, the personhood, or the personality of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. It's a neuter noun, which has led some to conclude that the Holy Spirit is some sort of impersonal force rather than a personal being, something like a pantheistic god or maybe the god of Star Wars, where you have a good side of the force and a bad side of the force, but the force is nothing personal. Because Numa is a neuter noun, some have concluded that the Holy Spirit must be impersonal. That's simply not the case, as we're going to see tonight. Charles Ryrie points this out in his basic theology. Not only is the spirit a person, he writes, but he is unique person, for he is God. Proofs of personality are not necessarily proofs of deity, but proofs of deity are also proofs of his personality. If God is a person, and if the Spirit is also God, then he's a person also. Other lines of thought with regard to the personhood of the Holy Spirit go like this. The Holy Spirit possesses and exhibits the basic elements of personality, rationality, communications, feeling, will. The Holy Spirit is rational. In in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. In order for the Spirit to intercede for us in accordance with God's will, he's got to be rational. He's got to be able to reason through what God's will would be and then intercede for us consistent with that. An impersonal force wouldn't do that. The Holy Spirit communicates. In First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, a, a verse we studied a couple of weeks ago on our Sunday morning service, this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The Holy Spirit also feels. Now, this is one of those ones that trips people up sometimes because of a doctrine called the impassibility of God, which says that God has no emotion. Impassibility really means that God has no emotion that is identical with our emotion. But the way the Bible presents God, the Bible presents God, God being the author of Scripture, presents himself as one who does feel. And it's not up to me to say, I know the Bible presents God as being that way, but God's not really that way. I think sometimes theologians get too smart by half, but the Bible does speak of the Holy Spirit grieving in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, by the way, in the context of our sin, the passage says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That passage is a central passage for a couple different aspects in theology. One is the grieving of the Holy Spirit. The other is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. But tonight we just consider the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Our sin causes the Holy Spirit to grieve according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It doesn't mean that our sin gives God a bad day, but God wants, in the way that He revealed Himself, He wants us to understand that that he's grieved when we sin. So this is an aspect of personhood or personality. He has feelings. And he also has will. He chooses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, all these are the work of the one and same Spirit, and he gives to each one just as he determines. So the Holy Spirit possesses and exhibits the elements of personality. Again, we're talking about the Holy Spirit as a person, not a thing, not an it. Things are it are not rational They don't communicate, they don't have feelings, and they don't have will. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit also performs the actions of a person. The Holy Spirit testifies in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, this is Jesus speaking, the spirit who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. You must also testify, because you've been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit testifies. That's an aspect of a person. The Holy Spirit guides us. We'll have in a future lesson, some of the particular ministries of the Holy Spirit, where we'll talk about these a little bit more. But the guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit is an awesome ministry of the Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. That's just one aspect of the Holy Spirit's guiding ministry. The Holy Spirit commands. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. the Holy Spirit commands. He forbade them from doing that. The Holy Spirit convicts another extremely important ministry, and we'll study that convicting ministry later in more detail, but, but now we're just talking about the Holy Spirit being a person. He convicts in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Are you starting to get the idea that John chapter 16 is a major chapter with regard to the Holy Spirit? Unless I go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 8. One of my favorite ministries of the Holy Spirit, but again a ministry that indicates that he is a person, not an it, not a thing, not an impersonal force, is the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Have you ever been in a position where you just didn't know what to pray? I I certainly have. You know you need to pray about something, but you're just not really sure where to even start. Fear not, because the Holy Spirit's right there by you, and he's going to take those prayers and translate those into something that's answerable. He intercedes in the same way. The Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. You see, that's the catch, isn't it? We learn that from our Lord Jesus, that if our prayers are going to be effective, we need to pray them. in in some way that's consistent with the will of God. But aren't there some times where you find it difficult to know what the will of God is in a particular situation? Especially, I think, when we're praying for for individuals. Maybe individuals that are suffering. Individuals that are going through a rough time. It pains me to say it, but sometimes that individual may be going through a rough time for their own good. Now, I'm going to (laughs) pray... Lord, please help them. Please have, please have your way with them. And oftentimes I'll pray, please rescue them from this situation. But the Holy Spirit prays along with us, and the Holy Spirit's telling the Father, no, don't do that, Father. We, you and I both know it's for their own good. And that's a comforting thing, to know that we can just go ahead and express our will, Lord, help that person, and that the Holy Spirit is going to translate that prayer into something that could be answered. In a way that's consistent with God's will. I love that ministry of the Holy Spirit, the interceding ministry. But a force doesn't intercede, a person intercedes. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit fellowships with us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, And Paul goes on to say, make my joy complete by trying to get along. Trying to get along, would you? Basically, is what he's saying in that chapter. But the Holy Spirit fellowships with us. The implied answer to every one of those if clauses is, yes, you do. If there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, and there is. If there's any comfort from His love, oh, and there is. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, and there is. Any tenderness and compassion, and there is. So, The Holy Spirit fellowships with us. He testifies, he guides, he commands, he convicts, he intercedes, he fellowships. These are all the actions of a person, not a force. The Holy Spirit performs the actions of a person. The Holy Spirit can be mistreated as a person. You can't mistreat a force. Force doesn't care if it's mistreated or not, but a Holy Spirit can be mistreated as a person. He can be blasphemed. I'd like you to open your Bibles to this particular passage in Matthew chapter 12. This is one of the hotly debated passages about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12. Let me tell you a little bit about this passage while you're turning there, particularly beginning in verse 22 where the context for this passage begins. In verse 22 Jesus is ministering. And then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. So we have this context of a healing. Many New Testament scholars believe that this is a turning point, the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the events that are mentioned here might be the turning point in all of Jesus' ministry. Up until now, He's come and he's made an honest, legitimate offer of the kingdom to the Jews. From this point on, it seems as though that offer has been taken off the table. It's been withdrawn and postponed to a different time. The offer hasn't been done away with. It's not as though the church has now become the recipient of the Abrahamic promises, but the offer has been postponed for a future time. That's why we await a future millennium. It's because of this passage right here. Jesus had made... His will perfectly clear. He had been doing miracles, demonstrating that he was indeed the Messiah, the covenant of Messiah to Israel, not just based upon his words, but also his works. Now he heals a a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb in the sight of everybody. And watch what happens. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This is a turning point. These men acknowledged the miracle. It happened right in front of them. They, they couldn't deny it. But instead of admitting that that miracle demonstrated that Jesus was indeed the covenant Messiah to Israel, the person that they had been looking for, he was who he said he was, These Pharisees said, okay, he did a miracle. He does have power, but he doesn't get his power from God. He gets his power from Satan. And Jesus says, in effect, after Matthew chapter 12, that's it. I wash my hands of this generation. There will be a kingdom, but it's going to be postponed to a future generation. So they go on. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom, your sons ca- by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand. It's just like that line that William Barrett Travis drew in the sand in 1836 at the Alamo. You've got to get on one side of it or the other side of it. You can't straddle that line. You can't be in both camps at the same time. Choose a side, pick a side, and get on it, Jesus is saying. I showed you the miracle. You cannot deny the miracle. I don't work for Satan. How, what sense would it make for me being a demon to cast out another demon? That doesn't make any sense at all. Why would that make sense, Jesus is saying? But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God then you better pay attention. I see the temperature going up in the room a little bit with regard to Jesus here, or outside, with regard to Jesus and what he's doing. It's getting a little testy here. But men's souls are at stake. In verse 29, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, then he'll plunder the house. And then the passage that is germane to us, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. That passage has really troubled people. For centuries that passage has troubled people. Because it appears to say that there's a sin that you can commit that's so egregious that it's unforgivable. Let's look at the context of the passage, though, and see what that sin could be. People have all kind of ideas on what, what that sin could possibly be. Some people would say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is using certain curse words, you know, using the Lord's name in vain. That would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's, if you do that, then you're going to hell for sure. There are other people that have different ideas of what that sin could possibly be. But in context... It's always good to go back to the Bible and check things in context. In the context, what has just happened? Jesus has just performed a miracle in front of all. He has healed this man that was born blind and couldn't speak. They had to make a choice, and Jesus has drawn the line. Now, remember what the line was. Okay, either I am doing this by Satan's power, but it doesn't make any sense if I was to do that, or I'm doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. If you deny, Jesus is saying, that I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then you're denying me. You're denying me and my Messiahship. So in the tight sphere of meaning, the unpardonable sin probably couldn't be committed today. At least according to Dwight Pentecost and others, the unpardonable sin is saying that Jesus performed this miracle in the power of Satan. That's the tight meaning, to use hermeneutical terms. But there's also significance, which is a broader sphere of meaning. In the broader sphere of meaning, what he's saying is it's unforgivable to reject Christ as Messiah, to reject Christ as Savior. That's the unpardonable sin, rejection of Jesus Christ. So tight meaning, saying that he didn't perform that that he performed that miracle rather, in the power of Satan. Broader meaning is rejection of Jesus as Messiah. In Acts chapter 5, a passage that we took a look at last time. We see that Jesus can be lied to and tested. Let's turn there again because this is a central passage also for the deity of the Holy Spirit. This is where we saw that the Holy Spirit was called God. Again, to remind you, if you weren't here last time, or if you're just picking up this on, this is the first tape on this series that you've picked up. This was a passage, the the only passage really, that we said that the Holy Spirit was actually called God. In this passage, you have two people, Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, who have sold a piece of property. While they, while they owned that property, it was theirs. When they sold it, all the receipts belonged to them. There is no mandate that they give all the money to the church. There never was a mandate. If you get that, you're missing the point of this passage. But previous to this... A man named Barnabas, who ended up becoming very well known in the church, did have a piece of land. He sold the land. He gave all the proceeds to the church. And everybody said, isn't Barnabas great? Ananias and Sapphira see this, and they want that same approbation. So they lie about how much they gave. Every time someone lies about how much they've given, it doesn't mean that you're under a death sentence. And it's a pretty good thing, because most Christians would be absolutely dead, because we all... I think that's the thing that Christians do is they fudge it just a little bit. Hopefully not, but sometimes they do. But sometimes, when, if you look through the book of Acts, when you see the, the very first time something happens, God tends to deal with it a little bit more severely, and that's what happens here. So Ananias and Sapphira sell this land, and they kept, in verse 2, they kept back uh, some of the price for himself. This is Ananias with his wife's full knowledge, and bring a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. So far, so good. There's no problem with that. Don't ever let anybody preach to you and say, that's the problem is they should have given everything they had to the church. That's not the point of this passage. The point comes in the next verse. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In this passage, the Holy Spirit is equated with God. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. You can't lie to a force. force doesn't care. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. Can the Holy Spirit be deceived? No. See, there's a difference. You can lie to the Holy Spirit, but you can't deceive the Holy Spirit. You can test the Holy Spirit, which is what happened here. But you can't deceive the Holy Spirit. Later on, Peter said to Sapphira, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord, to challenge Him, to see if He knows how much you really paid for that land and how much you're really given? You're challenging God. It's a silly thing to do. So the Holy Spirit can be lied to and tested. cannot be deceived, though. He can't be deceived because He's omniscient. We saw that last time. You can't deceive someone that's omniscient. The Holy Spirit... Can be resisted. Some would argue with this and say that the Holy Spirit can't be resisted. They call it irresistible grace. Once the Holy Spirit tugs on you, the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. However, there are two passages that indicate that he can. That's Acts chapter 6, verse 10, and Acts chapter 7, verse 51. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or by the Spirit whom he spoke. And he quotes, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. There's a question that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to this kind of concept. How do you resist an omnipotent being? Think about that for a moment. We said last time the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He was involved in in creative acts. He had to be omnipotent to help with the creation or restoration of the earth. He's involved in the creative act of regeneration. But yet, Stephen talks about these stiff-necked people resisting the Holy Spirit. How do you resist an omnipotent being? I remember back, and I think it was 1971 or 1972, there was a huge football game, kind of like the one that's coming up next week, between number one, LSU, and number two, Alabama. But at this time, it was... Number one, Nebraska, and number two, Oklahoma, or the two teams might have been switched. And I remember this cover of Sports Illustrated with irresistible force meets immovable object. Oklahoma was the irresistible force back then. They had the Heisman Trophy winner, and Nebraska's defense was the immovable object. Well, if you're an irresistible force, and Oklahoma wasn't, but let's say God is an irresistible force in terms of his omnipotence. How does a person resist something that's omnipotent? The answer to that is the omnipotent being has to be willing to allow someone to resist. To allow free will, to say no to me. That's the only way you're going to resist something that's omnipotent. The Holy Spirit has to choose. The omnipotent being has to choose to allow the creature, who is anything but omnipotent, To resist, to say no, and that's what happens. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Again, we talked about before: the Holy Spirit can be grieved, the Holy Spirit can be quenched or stifled. In one Thessalonians chapter five, verse nineteen through twenty-two, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to every. Kind of evil. The the phrase, do not put out the Spirit's fire, is a translation for do not quench the Holy Spirit. Others have liked to translate that, do not squelch the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can be quenched or stifled. The Holy Spirit can also be insulted. You can't insult an impersonal force, but you can insult the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 10, 29. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? who trampled the Son of God underfoot, who treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who insulted the Spirit of grace. In context, now there's debate about this, but in context this is probably talking about a believer who has insulted God because this is someone who has been sanctified or has been set apart. The unbeliever is not said to be sanctified. But believers... Certainly unbelievers can, but believers apparently can insult God. This shouldn't come as much of a shock to us, though. All of our sin insults God. When we know that we're not supposed to do something, and we purposely go right out and do it, that's an insult. So the Holy Spirit can be insulted. The Holy Spirit possesses and exhibits the elements of personality. The Holy Spirit performs the actions of a person, and the Holy Spirit can be mistreated as a person. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an impersonal force. He's a he. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Even though the the noun, pneuma, is a neuter noun, the Holy Spirit is a personal being. The neuter noun doesn't demand the Holy Spirit's impersonality, and that's why I've given you these three lines of argumentation. The Holy Spirit is addressed as a person, He possesses the necessary characteristics of a person and acts as a person. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is a person. Dr. John Walvoord, one of my favorite theologians of a previous generation, in his text entitled The Holy Spirit, states the conclusion and the implication as follows. He said, It is a fundamental revelation of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is a person in the same sense that God the Father is a person And that the Lord Jesus Christ is a person. The Holy Spirit is presented in Scripture as having the same essential deity as the Father and the Son, and is to be worshiped and adored, loved and obeyed in the same way as God. To regard the Holy Spirit in any other way is to make one guilty of blasphemy and unbelief. We tread therefore on most holy ground in thinking of the Holy Spirit of God, and the truth involved is most sacred and precious, Dr. John Wolford. Relatively little was said about the Holy Spirit and the writings of the early church fathers. We've discussed some of the things that were written about Christ and the early church fathers, but what about the Holy Spirit? Relatively little was said about the Holy Spirit. There was no major doctrinal debate in the earliest times of the church about the Holy Spirit. Clement of Rome, who lived between 30 and 100, included the Holy Spirit in a Trinitarian statement. So it goes way back. The deeds of the Holy Spirit goes way back. He said, as God lives, and the Lord Jesus lives, and the Holy Spirit lives. That's Clement of Alexandria, all the way back to the very first century. In the first century, the controversies weren't really on the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have a wrong idea about these church councils. We think that the church council just got together one day and decided, or some people think, that the church council just got together one day and said, we need to have a council. It's been seven years. Let's have a meeting. Well, somebody figure out the topic of the meeting. Well, we talked about Jesus last time. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit this time. That's not how it worked. Church councils were only convened when there was a problem. And since there wasn't really a problem with the Holy Spirit in the first or even the second centuries, there wasn't really a lot written about it. A lot was just assumed. If we had to situation with our church tonight we said we want to tackle these doctrinal statement issues we're going to have a church meeting and we're going to decide right now whether or not jesus was god and you say well i think i got something else to do that night it's pretty clear to me jesus is god does anybody got a problem with that no hands go up Say, well why are we having a meeting we all agree with that already well that would be that would be the silliness of having a church council if there wasn't a problem now, sometimes there are development problems. So that's when they would have the church council. But in the first few centuries, the controversies settled on more on the canon of Scripture, what books were to be included, and also on issues involving the person of Christ. So early on in the history of the church, you didn't have a lot of debate whether the Holy Spirit was God or whether the Holy Spirit was a person. But there were, also, there were some very well-known names that had faulty views of the Holy Spirit. They weren't enough at the time to really convene a church council on the Holy Spirit, anyway, but these people had a problem. One of the people who had a problem with the Holy Spirit may not be as well known of a name to you, but it probably ought to be. It's a fellow named Montanus. And Montanus lived in 170 AD, so in the second generation, third generation perhaps. He is the first person that we know of that departed from the Orthodox doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Montanism also came to be known as the Phrygian heresy. As the church grew increasingly formal, Montanism stressed the importance of holy living and the dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit. Holy living and the dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit. Anybody have a problem with that? I hope not. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's not the problem with Montanism. We would all say, amen to that. We need to be holy, and we need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. And that's orthodox. But the problem with Montanus was that he advocated the Holy Spirit as giving extra-biblical revelation to certain individuals. And that's where the train went off the tracks. Today, people even say, well, God spoke to me. You've heard that. And maybe God does speak providentially. He opens doors and He shuts doors. Sometimes people come and say, God spoke to me. And he wants me to, to, for you to do this. And my smart alecky answer, so if you ever come to me, this is going to be the answer that you're going to get. As soon as God tells me that, then I f- intend to do it. Those kind of things are typically pretty benign. They're pretty innocent, and we can both laugh about those kind of things. But when it comes to doctrinal issues, it's no longer funny. When you have someone like Joseph Smith, for example, that said, I got all this revelation from God that's not in the Bible, hundreds of years later, centuries later, I got all this information that's not in the Bible, he would be following, in a way, Montanus, saying that there was further revelation that God's going to give to you specifically, not to me, not to all of us, but just to you, after the completion of the canon of Scripture. It happens today where some people say things that aren't quite so benign. And they try to make a name for themselves when they do it. And they'll say things like predictive prophecy, like Benny Hinn did in Denver, Colorado. He said, the Holy Spirit has told me that the homosexual community is going to be completely destroyed in the United States by the year 2000. Big mistake, Benjamin, because that can be validated. As soon as it didn't come true, there's not a person on this planet that should ever listen to Benny Hinn again. I'm sorry. I'm not even sorry. I take it back. I'm not sorry. I will say that dogmatically. There's not a person on this planet that should ever listen to Benny Hinn again. He gave a predictive prophecy. He staked his ministry on it. It didn't come true. The Holy Spirit is not speaking to Benny Hinn or anybody else and telling them anything that's not in the Word of God in terms of doctrinal or spiritual truth. And predictive prophecies are part of the word of God and that's hey that's the same thing it's the same thing when people start predicting dates for the rapture a lot of times what people say well I know the bible says we can't know but well there's no but after that <laughs> unless you want to say well listen I, I see things that look like that okay I see things that look like the biblical model but you better not set a date As soon as you set a date, you're done. You're finished if it doesn't happen that day. In the Old Testament, you'd have been stoned. And that don't mean smoking a marijuana cigarette. (laughs) They'd have thrown rocks at you. Because that was the biblical mandate. There's this benign kind of thing where God the Holy Spirit told me that you should go to Louisiana State University. That's one thing. There's another thing when somebody comes and says, God the Holy Spirit told me, and then they try to... To present to you a propositional truth from the Word of God, say like, or that's I'm sorry, that's apart from the Word of God, like say somebody like Joseph Smith did. That all started with a fellow named Montanus. And it was this particular policy, not the idea that since the church was becoming formal, we need to get back to to the leading ministry of the Holy Spirit. Nobody had a problem with that. They had a problem with them saying there's that there's revelation that comes outside of the Bible to a particular person. That's not an apostle. After the canon of scripture was completed, that's Montanus' problem. Tertullian, who who's an early church father, well known, called the Holy Spirit God and held him to be of the same substance as the Father and the Son, yet he embraced the air of Montanism. So he did the same thing. He followed with Montanus. Origen believed in a trinity, but he gravitated toward tritheism. He saw the Holy Spirit as created by Christ, a God that was created by Christ and therefore subordinate to both the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit may be subordinate to the Father and the Son in terms of his function, but not in terms of his being. Eusebius, someone who's often quoted by pastors even today, he at first followed Origen, saying that the Holy Spirit was god but subordinate but then he actually endorsed the views of arius the man we talked about a few weeks ago that denied the deity of christ and he also denied the deity of the holy spirit later on Origen came back but for a time origin was off the tracks as well and Sibelius, this is a man who lived in 215 ish he departed even further from the understanding of the trinity we talked about him and we talked about jesus and he, his movement was called modalism which said there's one God but three different expressions of that one God in the Godhead. With respect to early church councils, most of the attention was on Christ. But late in the 4th century, late in the 300s, a land named Macedonius, or Macedonius as they probably pronounced it, but I'll pronounce it Macedonius, he was the Bishop of Constantinople, and he was open and he was vocal in his opposition to the Holy Spirit open and vocal, and the thing was he gained a following. And since he gained a following, then something had to be done. He argued that the Spirit was a creature subordinate to the Son. If he hadn't gained a following, nobody would have ever paid any attention to him. But since he gained a following, they convened a council at Constantinople, his hometown, in 381, and two people defended the Orthodox view, a man named Gregory, a man named Basil or Basile, They led the orthodox position there. They insisted that the Holy Spirit must be reckoned with, the Father and the Son, not reckoned below Him. At this council, the deity of the Holy Spirit was affirmed, 381. This was their statement. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the life-giving, who proceeds from the Father, who is to be glorified with the Father and the Son, and who speaks through the prophets. Some people were a little upset back in 381 that they didn't come out and say, we believe that the Holy Spirit is God. But listen to this statement again. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the life-giving, who proceeds from the Father, who is to be glorified with the Father and with the Son. If He's to be glorified with the Father and the Son, I don't know how they could have said it a whole lot more clearly than that. And who speaks through the prophets. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person.